Hello and welcome to another episode of Coffee and Conservation, a laid-back podcast where we discuss everything from cool animals, conservation, the environment, and what we can do to help. I'm Robert Pike, a field journalist for the Global Conservation Force, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mike Veal, a world-renowned rhino conservationist and president of the Global Conservation Force. Hello and welcome to, the, to another episode of Coffee and Conservation. My name is Robert Pike. I am joined by my co-host Mike Veal, and today we have a very special guest joining us all the way from the sunny South Africa, Tyrone Ping. Tyrone, how you doing? Hey guys, thanks so much for having me. I'm doing good. Pleased to be then, here. Yeah, good, thanks man. for joining us, dude. You. I don't know if you if you are frequent our podcast or anything like that, but this intro, ten out of ten compared to uh, the other three that I've done. So my track record's improving. Well, I'd say it depends on what you rate 10 out of 10, because the other ones were 10 out of 10 for comedy, so. Yeah, gosh. <laughs> rate. I got, I got all, I was stress sweating. I was, I was like, okay, pronunciation, let's go slow. So you, you are, Tyrone, you are amongst professionals. Oh, yeah. I, I can tell. I, I've spent time with Mike. I, I know all oh, about God. the professionalism. <laughs> 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 we're, we're wild boys yeah so tyrone how about uh how about you tell us a little bit about yourself you know cool yeah what just you to, like you know where you're from to give you yeah, a bit of a backstory so um yeah obviously my name is tyrone if you didn't get that before now you did um yeah i'm, I'm based out of cape town in south africa i grew up in the eastern part of south africa so KwaZulu natal where it's pretty Ooh. much mamba mamba and big five sort of country uh, but now I switched switched it up a little bit. Now I'm stuck down in Cape Town with the mountains. Um, yeah, not a not a bad place to be, metropolitan mm-hmm. city. But I mean, we've got the mountains, the beach, everything pretty much right on the doorstep. So loads of That's new awesome. loads of new critters and and creatures for me to track down, which was pretty much a driving force moving right across the country. Yeah, That's kind of crazy and, that you would leave like Kazulu Hotel to find creepy crawlies in Cape Town, because I yeah. would I would think it'd be the latter. Well, I mean, I'd, I'd spend my, my pretty much my whole life up in KwaZulu-Natal. So, I mean, I'd, I've gone from corner to corner of the sort of province. I've found pretty much all the stuff that needs to be found, mm. ticked off most of the snakes, the reptiles, the amphibians. So I just thought, you know, there's other places and there's more things to see. So packed up my life pretty much in the back of my sort of little four by four. And I trekked down to Cape Town. And I've cool. been, yeah, I've been here for about, oh yeah, just shy of two years now. So a little while. Okay. All right, so riddle me this, Batman. I heard somewhere, and I can't remember who it was, but it was a South African, and they said that people in Cape Town are the best at cussing, or like the best at swear words. Is this accurate? It, it comes pretty naturally. Um, you know, you'll just be walking down, you'll be walking down the street, and there'll just be a bunch of kids, you know, six, seven-year-old kids, just like dropping yeah. the worst words you've really? ever heard. They'll make enough. You know, makes old people stop around and be like, well, "Who is that? What is that?" And it's just like a seven yeah. or eight year old kid. Yeah, <laughs> and it's it, it transcends languages as well. You know, it, they yeah. they'll be throwing it down in English, and they'll also be throwing it out in Afrikaans, which is obviously a, one of the local languages down here. So, and the best part is they'll they'll sort of mix it up. I mean, Mike will be able to stand for this. Sometimes they go straight from Afrikaans, hit back to English, and they switch back and forth. So. Yeah, things can get pretty oh, wild on the too. streets. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, things get wild on it's, the it's streets. It's definitely like a 
it, it's like an Afro English. It's like the the split between mm. Afrikaans. Like when you when in in like California, someone will say like sometimes someone's speaking in Spanglish because they're like mm-hmm. split Spanish English, and then they'll say Spanish words with full English pronunciation, and then jump in and be completely accurate <laughs> with their Spanish again. And so it's it's the same, but except like Afrikaans is a jolting difference from the English pronunciation of things. So mm-hmm. when you hear it, it's like, it's like a hard switch back and forth, but it's fast. So it's funny because sometimes if you're not paying attention, you like turn and you're like, what did he, Oh, I know what he, oh, sure. okay. I got what he's saying. <laughs> cool. <laughs> yeah. I often, you know, when people say, you know, what's Supercons like, I'm like, have you guys ever heard of that group? The uh, Antwoord. I know they, yep. they had some American showtime for a while and that's pretty much, <laughs> It's like the American white trash, but the Afrikaans yeah. version. Yeah, that's that's it in a nutshell. Okay. So, <laughs> so like, what kind of creepy crawlers are you chasing in Cape Town? Yeah, so it's um, it's pretty much I'm easy to please. Any any reptiles, any amphibians. That's sort of my game and go to. So, um, obviously, snake wise, Cape Town is well known for some. Some rather special snakes, you know, you got your your classic Cape Cobras, your mole snakes, your puffers, your boomslung, and um, and then the, the nice thing about about Cape Town in general is there's lots of obviously mountain ranges, so you get a lot of endemic, uh, particularly endemic frogs in the, some of these mountains. You'll have a particular endemic frog that only lives in the plateau of one mountain, and then the mountain alongside it has another endemic frog. So I mean, there's lots of endemic animals, lots of special animals, um, and, you know, just a lot of animals that are, are really sort of under threat, you know, just from the urban sprawl of, you know, just the place being torn down, um, you know, put up for buildings and, and shopping malls and that sort of stuff, yeah. which is which is not unique to South Africa or Cape Town. It's pretty much a global issue. Um, like you guys would know, I mean, deforestation, frag, habitat mm-hmm. fragmentation, it's it's a big problem down here. Absolutely. Okay. I think that's interesting is, is, um cape town is a big city but it also has like a small it has small city vibes in some area but then also has like that touch of the wild like you're on the edge of the wild with like how how wild the cape itself is like the ocean right there and then uh you know table mountain lion's head up there and and like there's like pockets of nature like separating the city sprawl uh it's super cool to know that there's still some stuff living up in the hills up there. That's, you know, the lesser species. I know that there's been like uh, a lot of camera trapping for like leopards and stuff that are still cruising through certain areas. Um, but let's, uh, let's talk about your book, dude. I mean, that's a pretty big deal, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, the book's been, it was, yeah, obviously a long time in the work. Uh, I've been working on it for about three years, um, and then obviously with the with the whole sort of closing down of the world with lockdown. So I, I spent a solid two years not being able to travel all that much, not being able to do a heck of a lot, um, besides photograph the sort of the lizards and chameleons that were in my garden. So I, I spent a lot of time just wiring, sitting down at my desk, just trying to finish this book. Um, but yeah, so essentially, it's um, the first of its kind. It's a field guide to the snakes and other reptiles of KwaZulu Natal. Obviously, the the province where I grew up, um, mm-hmm. you know, we it covers over 170. It comprehensively covers over 170 species um, that are found within the province. So, it was a tall order, you know, to get through and get done. And a lot of people, you know, sort of thought, you know, you're going to start it and give up, you know, halfway, or you know, it'll get too tough, and you just sort of give up. But 
unfortunately, I'm way too stubborn for that. So managed to managed to finish up, wrap it up, and print my first print run sold out within sort of 48 hours. So that was a little That's bit ridiculous. Rad. That's yeah. so cool. <laughs> so That's that was, really cool, dude. So now I've I've had a lot of people on back order for books and stuff. So it's been a little bit been a bit of a nightmare sort of created my own sort of problem but i mean it's it's a good problem to be in so mm-hmm. um yeah and, and actually I've, I've started working on the western cape book um which is obviously the province where i'm based now um down here in cape town so that's about 80 percent done so i think i've been bitten by the book that's bug, so cool. but the book bug really hard so um yeah and i mean a lot of people it's been responded to really well. I mean, a lot of people are super stoked on it and just having a provincial guide, you know, a local guide rather than a, a big national guide um, to get hands on. Oh, it's, it was a game changer. It's like that thing is, I mean, coming from my perspective with like identifying local species and stuff, like there are so many like subspecies and variations in every part of the world it's hard to catch up. And then sometimes when you have a book like yours, you're like, Oh my gosh, that's right. They are in this province. We are within range. This is this subspecies. It's different than this one. Oh, I'm not going to touch one of these smaller, uh, harmless looking black snakes because they're one of the five that could in Tyrone's word, melt your own finger off kind of thing. (laughs) And (laughs) because it's like, you have to remind yourself, depending on where you're at, you're like, Oh, these are harmless. Nope. That one's not, that one's definitely not. Um, and the most harmless looking one could be the one that's the, the scariest one, like that, um, the one we had caught for the filming uh, with Coyote Peterson. You know, I had heard about them, but it's funny, my brain never clicked like, ah, uh, yes, they are here. They are right here. Like, yeah. and then I'm like, oh my gosh, that is the species that, you know, I've heard about for so many years. It's just my brain didn't match it to like the actual map. Um, so this book is, your, your books are like, massively helpful for everybody honestly that's mm-hmm. looking to learn more about all these species and i think it's gonna open up quite a few big doors for you man it's 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 really cool yeah cheers man yeah it's, it's even gonna open up a few doors and just keep me busy for the next couple of years as, as i sort of knock off the rest of the provinces so i mean i've done the one busy with the next so i've got seven and essentially seven more books to do so i mean I, i've got cool. a couple, i've got a couple of years to get it done in so just got to keep on grinding that's away. That's me sick. Yeah, but one of the one of the major draws of, of me wanting to do this was just you know growing up you know you know being super interested in snakes and reptiles. There was never something like this. There was never a guide, so you'd always have to you know look at these big guides. Like Mike was saying, you, you sometimes look at a book and it says, okay, this is in this area, but you know growing up that it's it's not in this area or it doesn't look like that a particular animal in the book and that sort of thing. So I, I've tried yeah. to regionalize it and show the natural regional variations um and yeah just just give give essentially give back to the sort of wildlife and the greater herping community um give back something that i really wish that i had when i was growing up you know and getting mm-hmm. um and getting into all the reptiles because like mike was saying it's it's a pretty tricky thing you know a lot of times you learn the hard way you're like this thing looks really harmless but it could be something really dangerous and like it could just melt your finger <laughs> off and i mean that's that's a lesson you don't really want to learn the hard way Mm-hmm. yeah it, it's it's i think you nailed it these the reason i got so excited about your book is it's the exact book that i wish i had as a kid because in the states the snakes obviously are much different pretty much you can identify rattlesnakes really easily in most parts of the continental u.s but like um there's a myriad of other snakes all over the place and you just 
can't find their name. You know, when I was a kid before the internet, like you're like, I caught this really cool snake. I don't know how to figure out what it is. Like there was just yeah. wasn't unless you knew somebody who like legitimately knew every species there or you were in a national park and the rangers could help you ID it. It was really hard. Um, and then you grow up later, you know, looking back and you're like, I totally, that was a different species that I thought it was this entire time. You're like, I thought that was a such and such and it's clearly not. Um, but like, you know, uh, specifically Southern Africa, there are a lot of species that can really teach you a serious lesson if you make that mistake in the wrong direction. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's, you could even say it's a life, life-saving uh, book for even people who work in the field who are not really, uh, I guess, well-versed in many of the species. You could underestimate a simple bite that may be painless uh, and not respond in time and get yourself into a real serious situation. Yeah, then you, then you, get, then you really do learn the hard way. Um, yeah. And a lot of things I've also learned, you know, while doing it and while researching, you know, breeding, you know, books from the early 18, well, sorry, the early 1900s, which is how much we've actually learned from then and how much of my own personal field experience I was able to put into the book, um, you know, because growing up, you'd read, you'd read stuff in books and it was always the same information from one book to the next to the next, because essentially everyone was just paraphrasing the first sort of reptile book that was ever written on Southern Africa. Um, so I, yeah. In this one, I really try to give it my own personal approach and sort of my personal field observations and my personal um, sort of experiences rather than just citing, of course, obviously citing literature is important, but I mean, I think with anything, like whether it be technology or literature or books, it's important to update things and change things as you, as we go, because we're learning new things all the time. Um, you know, and if you look back, there's a lot of information that was perhaps, you know, not correctly sort of set out or, or recorded in initially. And it's just sort of, it's sort of like a broken down telephone, like through the years and the decades, the story's gotten so twisted or the information's become so sort of outdated or, or just like so far removed from what the actual fact of the matter is. So yeah, it was, yeah, that's a big problem, especially with like transcribing it from original scholarly article or quote citizen science scholarly articles that were first first observations they're almost like folklore tales in some aspects when you read them you're like what what is this yeah uh i mean that's what's so cool though is you have a ton of field experience like this is your passion this is your hobby this is your thing like working with uh tyrone out in the field was like so exciting for me because uh i basically like you are the person i would want to hang out with if we were going to do this like somehow we found each other for this <laughs> this film gig guy. and and robert can attest to the fact because he's been with me in other places of the world like i'm the dude that's always gotta get in and see what the creepy crawly is gotta pick mm -hmm. it up gotta investigate it and <laughs> uh, there have been times where there have been I've, we have found other, uh, other like-minded players, like uh, one that Robert like his had coined Costa Rican Mike. Mm -hmm. He was a dude in his his late forties who was just like a herping machine. The dude, we we went all day into the late evening into the jungle, like I mean, like midnight. It's raining. It's completely drenched, and we're we're just turning leaves and finding different species of snakes and frogs and um, toads and arachnids 
and Robert's like, I'm done. Nope. This is scary. This is yep. terrible. This is terrifying. <laughs> How did I get enough. put into this? Like this situation I'm, I'm tapping. I like, uh, I like things. So, with fur. <laughs> Tarantulas <laughs> technically have fur. Uh, I like, <laughs> I like things with, uh, that are like pass with four legs. It's not okay, that okay. Maybe it's not that I'm afraid of things. It's just you know what it is. Is I need a good I need a good intro into herping. So like I was on the on the last podcast we were talking about uh, Mike and um, we were talking about you Tyrone about us going to South Africa and you guys are gonna have to like baby step me into herping. So like I'm thinking like let's start with a frog, and then after I take off the gloves, we can like work to something with less legs. Yeah, we'll go. We'll go from a, a fr- we. Well, Michael, tell you. I mean, we'll go straight from the thing with South Africa and Africa in general is generally there aren't very many intro steps or baby steps. Um, when when yeah, <laughs> dude, everything is there. Well, I'll give you some context. Just when when Mike and the crew were were just out in South Africa now, we are helping them offload all their gear into their rooms. Not even mm-hmm. not even thirty seconds later, we're walking around and someone screams "snake black mamba" and we're like, "I'm really? like, okay. I was like, all right, cool, but I know there's no black mambas in the area, so I was like, I don't know what the heck this can be." So the next minute, like uh, the other guy, um, good buddy of mine, Anton, he's in the bush like rumbling around. The next minute, I just see this big black tail like shoot past my face, so I grab the tail yeah. and within I just turn around and Mike's just there with the hook stick. I'm like, oh, I need this. And we just taken this down and it was like, I mean, it, it wasn't massive, but it was probably about 1.5, 1.6 meter forest cobra, like while mm. it was getting dark. So, I mean, you know, there's, there's, yeah, there's no sort of um, training wheels. It's just sort of, you got to be all in. Yeah. Wait, is this Anton it's Anton a, from Kazulu Nutella? Yeah, this is, yeah, yeah. Dude, same that, Anton. That effing guy. Yeah. Was the first time <laughs> I was in Africa, he was like, hey, you're going to see something cool. And he pulls out a seven foot forest cobra. And I was like, oh, yeah. I thought we were going to go to dinner. That's super cool. <laughs> was, yeah, he pulled out a forest cobra and he pulled out a puff adder. Yeah, I mean that's just it's, that's sort of standard procedure. That's... You only you only sort of take a little bit of caution when you start whipping out the big lapids, so your your big mambas and stuff. <laughs> I mean the forest cobras, they're pretty. I mean they're run of the mill. I mean it's it's like you know just going to the store, getting some bread and milk. I mean it's no big deal. That's right. Oh, God. It's just a casual walk in the forest. You guys are not I mean... helping the intro, the baby stepping. <laughs> <laughs> we did the that was there were so many funny moments too like uh even the night where we were looking for chameleons specifically we were shining for flap flapneck chameleons to do a little story segment on like the babies who come up to like the tops of the grass shoots at night and uh <laughs> i don't it was someone also saw the the vine snake uh <laughs> really yeah it was just like Boom! There it is, and it's like, okay, cool. Let's get it. Let's get the the landy over here so we can stand on the roof. So Tyrone is is well, hooking this thing uh, out of you're like breaking up a little bit, bud. Oh shoot! Uh, I was just, like, just, that, just that last story. Yeah, it, this is a oh, good okay. story. So it's worth yeah. the, it's worth the rerun. Yeah, <laughs> it's worth the rerun. So so yeah, so someone spots this this vine snake, and t- we end up someone gets the the land cruiser over and Tyrone ends up standing on the roof of the landy and is really is hooking this thing out of the top of the tree. And like, <laughs> it's like a balancing act with the tubs and everything out because the story started, we were just looking for baby chameleons and chameleons so we could film that story and get like a little, uh, you know, a little reconnaissance 
view of what the area was like. And boom, you know, I'll let Tyrone talk about this snake, but you know, it's very, very pretty, very non-seeming. And this is the one that I was talking about where I knew that they were there and I've always known about them, but for some reason my brain was not like, oh, they are here, here. Mm-hmm. Like we could actually see them as we're looking for them, which I got ridiculously excited about. But at the same time, it's one of those snakes that is the most unassuming, dangerous things if you actually were to get bit. Um, Ty, I'll pass it to you, dude, because like you got to talk about these guys. Um, they're just so cool. They're just a very pretty random snake. Yeah, the the twig snake. That was that was a fun. I mean, I think that was also the first or second night um, that you guys mm-hmm. were there. So you know, I I sort of jump on the top of the Land Cruiser and I'm trying to get the snake out the tree. So I'm I've got a set of tongs. So I don't want to squeeze the snake because they they're really sort of like long, slender, delicate snakes. So now I'm trying to get the snake out the tree, and then I'm also trying to get down off the Land Cruiser. So I eventually landed just passing the snake. I mean, the guys had just been there, but I was like, oh, you know, to to one of the other guys, Mario. I was like, oh, here's the twig snake. Here we go take the snake, put it in a bucket, let me jump down. But, um, I mean, that all ended well. But, yeah, the, the vine snake, oh, they'll, they'll call them a twig snake because essentially it looks just like a dry, a dry twig. Um, they actually don't have any antivenom, which a lot of people tend to get a little bit, like, apprehensive about. Mm. So, you know, most cases, like a mom or a cobra or rattlesnake or any sort of snake, you know, if there's antivenom, you're like, all right, cool, there's, there's antivenom, there's a pretty good chance that I'm not going to die. And then when you tell yeah. people, oh, you tell people, oh, this cute little twig snake, yeah, there's no antivenom. People just think it's like the most horrendous creature on the face of the planet. But <laughs> in, in their defense, they're pretty relaxed. I mean, it takes a lot to get yeah. them riled up. Um, and they are rear fanged, um, which is even more strange for a sort of a potentially lethal snake being rear fanged. Most, most rear fanged snakes aren't, aren't sort of lethal. But um, they don't bite a lot of people. Um, and the venom, unfortunately, is even worse than the, the sort of story around them. It's, it's sort of a hemotoxic venom, so it's sort of an anticoagulant. So it just causes your blood to progressively thin. So you start bleeding out of your sort of any open orifices, your eyes, your mouth, your nose, um, you know, internal bleeding and other places which we won't delve deep into. But um, yeah, pr- pretty, pretty horrendous. So, I mean, if you don't get treated by these snakes, there's a high probability that you can die purely just from blood loss. So wow. not a not a good way to go, and it, it's quite a slow acting venom. So I mean, it can take you know a couple of days um, to die if if you don't get treated. So not a so, not a good yeah. time. So wait, you knew that the snake does it, and you were like, you know what? Let's jump on this car with these tongs. Absolutely. Well, yeah, it's and just you're... an it's just another day. I couldn't. I could. The guys had just arrived as well. Could you imagine? Like oh, I, I'm their main like snake guy on this sort of film crew, and imagine yeah. me just pointing up and be like, "Oh, that thing's really dangerous. We're gonna leave it there." I mean, these guys would have been like, "This guy's <laughs> this guy's like the worst guide or, or handler ever." So I mean, I had, I, I had to get up there. <laughs> I mean, they just got out of the plane. Yeah, I mean, that's really, you guys, you got, that's cool. There's so many things to it, though. It's so funny because like, even I think even Mario and Kaidi Peterson, so Mario Aldakov and coyote peterson uh were like like their brains didn't register like no guys like everything is here at this point we've seen i think two large forest cobras one on the walkway one that was by the one of the rooms that uh ty and anton grabbed uh Mm -hmm. from kind of face height out of the brush (laughs) and then (laughs) this guy and then like mario who's he's a biologist uh but he's part of the wilderness film crew as well he is so excited because now all of a sudden he's like, 
I can literally be on the front porch and find things. Like he was just looking everywhere because there's so many cool things just right there. But at the same time, like that was the whole reason we had gone to this area of Kuzu Natal. We were doing several specific reptile episodes. Um, And I got to say, like, um, it was comical because everybody was pretty good. Like, obviously, Coyote and Mario and myself have, you know, snake experience. Trent, the camera guy, he's been around a lot of the different species that they film, but he's definitely not one who's going to pick up the snake tongs. But each one of us had a different had had a different species of snake that kind of like had us standing a little bit further back. And comically, it was the spitting cobra for Trent. He literally stood on the other side of the room, and it was after uh, Tyrone had mentioned that when their venom crystallizes and you could still cause yourself issues because he was like, he had accidentally like rubbed his face or something and he started panicking. Yep. <laughs> I, I resonate with this guy. <laughs> and, then, and then I was like the, I mean, which I would hope that everybody would be respectful of this snake specifically. I was straight up on my toes when we were getting the black mambas from old Greg's house. Like that <laughs> there's nothing honestly like hot wild black mambas like you know they're in their element it's warm day like in your tight quarters that had me just like oh god i'm watching every tiny movement everywhere that whole black mamba experience was just wild i mean to, to, to sort of set the scene we're in this decrepit like out like outbuilding shed type of thing there's no like, windows Texas yeah. chainsaw massacre with, with an <laughs> really? old guy who fits the set like yeah. straight up it it's like a car cemetery in a human cemetery as well and the african bush up against kind of closer to the hillsides and surrounded by very tall grass but like there's old land cruisers and gutted uh, lorry trucks and like all these different off-road vehicles, a mechanics warehouse that is just a graveyard of vehicle parts and some nice cars that are perfectly assembled. Like, <laughs> and then like this really weird fire pit next to an abandoned staff quarters that's got like burnt dolls and flip flops and kids shoes in it. It was like, when we rolled up, it was like, are we going to die? Like I was like, my brain's on like, oh, we're going to catch black mambas. And I'm like, am I going to have to be part of a security detail here now? Because like this place <laughs> is like, we're going to get meat hooked and skinned or something over here. So it fit the match of a of, of full on black mamba story. It was, it was comedy gold too, in the satirical sense. Not like, haha, this is all funny. Like, do we just, does this, did this just happen? Like, is this for real? Like old Greg, the site and black mambas what yeah. uh so i'm gonna pass it back to you ty because like that there's so much to go into on this yeah, one is, i i think what will have to you know when the brave wilderness team actually releases that mamba episode we might you might have to check it out to just yeah it'll give you yeah, a, a whole lot of context but i mean the the guy who's profited is as his name is greg but i mean we deemed him all greg just because you oh, okay. know he fits the scene um, we we sort of get up there and he's already he's like do I need to get my shotgun he's like if you guys don't catch this mamba I'm just gonna blast it to pieces with the shotgun so we're like cool, hell cool. yeah Greg <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. and we got called there because um, he called that uh, old Greg called Anton Anton's 
a mutual friend of all of ours, and that's where we were staying at his house. And Anton had put like a call out like, hey, we're going to be doing some snake relocations and rescues if anybody's got some stuff. And this guy calls Anton with a voice note of 50 like F-bomb drops of <laughs> this black mamba is in really? my house again and then round my house and it's killed two of my dogs. And here's the directions. And we're at we're actually getting lunch. And Tyrone ends up drawing a map like on a blank piece of paper to get us there. And so it's like a treasure map of like the the scariest place on earth. Like yeah. he's, he's writing it down, like uh, turn at the bridge at the river, at the road crossing, and then go this far past like the uh, tower. And there's going to be a wagon wheel. And at the wagon wheel, you're going to turn left. <laughs> we're, we're out in the middle of nowhere. And then we, we know we get there because when we roll up to the property, it matches what Anton said. Like it's a scary, weird property. And sadly, there's a dead dog straight up in the sun still. Like the really? dude just it, like it had happened within, I think, the hour, like within yep. the last hour or so. And obviously the dude's not going to go near a black mamba. And if his dog's gotten bit, sadly, there's nothing he can do in that yeah. area. So it was like a real like wake up call to all of us like, oh, we're here. Uh what and there's so many things after that like what is happening like what what is this place and then like ty said he comes out and greets us he's like am i gonna have to get my shotgun you know like and of course he's, he doesn't have my accent at all he's got a proper like south african bushman's like he's got a twang to his south african that was priceless uh that's just a he just that's what we call like just a straight up Afrikaans redneck, you know. Yeah. So that's that's sort of that that sort of whole vibe. But yeah, that was wild because I mean eventually, uh like Mike was saying, the, the dog the snake had obviously bitten the dog. This was obviously the day prior when we went to go catch the other black mamba. But um yeah, old Greg decided he couldn't have any more of his dogs die, so he just um pounded this black mamba with multiple bricks, um, which is quite sad. But yeah. at least the guys got to see close up, um, you know, looked at this black mamba and you sort of squeeze the head and, you know, the venom still pours out of the fangs. So, I mean, it's like a loaded gun. I mean, even a dead, even a dead snake yeah. like that can still, you know, sort of put you in hospital, put you, <laughs> put you underground, to be honest. So mm-hmm. a little, little bit of a, a tight situation. Yeah, but I mean, and then we had to catch, you know, the next day we go back for another snake and then we had to catch the snake. You know, in this little shed, we've got this whole film crew and we want to do one take. And there's, I'm, to be honest with you, I'm more afraid of the wasps and the hornets that are in this oh, yeah, buzzing around really? than I am about this black mamba. Yeah, it was, yeah. It, <laughs> That's right. You were tripping about the wasps because they were like stuck to the pillar that we were close by. And then like, I'm, I'm running like, uh, I'm like the onsite medic transport plan guy, right? Like, so in my brain, I'm watching like Trent, Mario, Kyrie Peterson. I'm I'm not worried about Ty, but obviously I would respond to Ty if he needed help immediately. But like I'm watching like this black mamba, and you know, you have like Mario and Trent with the cameras and the snake, you know, just naturally getting through things and going around. And you're like, this one snake could bite all of us in its mm-hmm. way of getting out of here. And we're all so screwed. Like, I've got two EpiPens and a snake bite kit, which the snake bite kit is nothing more than a stabilization plan. Like it just helps you stabilize yourself to get going. And if you get bit by a mamba, there's a high chance because of the neurotoxic uh, components to the venom 
that someone stops breathing. So you might have to be doing CPR. And if more than one person gets tagged by this thing by chance, then <laughs> multiple people are going to have to be doing CPR. And I was just like, in my head, I'm like, think of the worst plan for the worst, be ready for the best situation at the same time. <laughs> so my, my brain is ping ponging on those two corners of thoughts and I'm watching the black Mamba and I've got the snake hook out. And honestly, at the same time to, to put it into real honest framework, we're not worried because there's multiple people on site. All of us have a lot of experience with snakes and especially Ty and Anton with the local really fast black mambas and you know the whole setting so it's not like you're truly worried like it's gonna happen it's just like the potential of what could happen mm-hmm. in your head you're just like oh man this could get really interesting really quick um and then you couple that with old greg like for those who don't know there's a old british comedy skit and there's a character old greg and that's where the old greg reference came from <laughs> Because the obscurity of the the person himself on site and the location, it was just, it was our comedy relief for the um, level of seriousness and sadness that came along with the black mama getting killed and the dog that had been bit. And just the really strange mechanic who we came across in the middle of the African bush out there. Um, so old Greg, character setting, mambas, definitely a highlight of... Uh, 2022 i'm gonna say (laughs) it's gonna be a hard one to top this year um that even with all the other stuff we have going on like the week prior we were putting gps uh new new technology gps locators and black rhino horns and tracking pangolins a month prior to that and still old greg takes the cake for that this so far this year like hands down most interesting story of 2022 yet um wow I was just thinking, Mike, as you were saying, you know, worst case scenario, you know, people getting bit. Um, I was just thinking in my mind, as you said that, like worst case scenario, I just could think of, you know, getting getting mouth to mouth from old Greg. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can, exactly. Can you imagine if he was the one responding and he's like with his full twang and his teeth missing and his whistling talk and he's the one that's giving you CPR, it'll be like, yeah. just kill me, bring out the like- shotgun. I, I would just, just end me. Got the got the mamba again for a secondary bite. Yeah, yeah exactly. Can Straight we double down or triple shot on this thing? I need to end this for myself quicker. <laughs> this, is, this is not worth it. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, it's yeah. Oh, that was a wild, a wild time. And I mean, it's it's it's, it's the, the best part is it, it's. I, I don't want to say like it's a commonplace, but I mean, it wasn't even that unusual. Um, yeah. You know, that's that's what makes it so good. The framework now, of that this, is pretty funny, sorry. right? Sorry, Robert, I was just going to say to his point is um, when you do wildlife conflict callouts, so like a snake in someone's chicken coop or a snake in someone's yard or, you know, in some other places, it might be painted dogs or elephants. This scenario of character clashing is really common, but it's always interesting how the interactions vary between the different species. So like... um, you know, like snakes, people come in like, I killed the snake. And you're like, that's not even a venomous snake. Or you almost got yourself bit or they did get bit because they tried to grab the snake in the misnomer of like, get the snake so we can identify it. And, and then other places, it's like people are chasing adult full-size elephants. And you're like, 
are you out of your mind? Like, mm-hmm. what, and they're like, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna scare it out of here. You're like, dude, that thing is big, powerful, and angry now. And like the mentality that comes into the clashing, there's kind of it's always a soap opera. Basically, it's always like this mash of just odd situations coming into play. So sorry, Robert. I was like, go ahead, bro. I just wanted no, to like, no, it's, yeah, no, I frame that because there is there is no normal setting when like <laughs> you're dealing with wildlife and community or wildlife and people conflicts. I reckon. Yeah, no, I, I was, and I, I'm glad you you said it too because I was totally going to derail this conversation. <laughs> so I'm glad you got oh, yours in first. <laughs> derail away, bro. Derail, right? Okay. Now, I'm just going to ask Tyrone if this was his first time meeting Coyote Peterson. Oh yeah, that that was the first time I first time meeting um, Mike and the rest of the team as well. Yeah, that I, was your first I time meeting Mike too. Yeah, yeah, really. Yeah. You guys, I, I I was under the impression that you guys were like BFFs. Oh, well, I mean, we are now. I mean, after yeah. this trip, I mean, we spent a good I don't know how long that was eight nine days, like twenty four seven doing some yeah. wild stuff. I mean, yeah, we're we're down. <laughs> Thick as yeah, yeah. I was gonna ask how how you knew Mike. I didn't realize it was so sudden. Yeah, yeah. Actually, it was Anton. Um, I had reached out to Anton because I was like, when the Brave Wilderness crew said that they wanted to do um, venomous reptiles, I was like, you know, I'm comfortable with them and I'm not. Like, I yeah. don't want to be the one hooking and doing all that stuff if I also got to be medic and driving and fixing yeah. schedules and stuff. I, I was like, there's got to be somebody else who's better suited, who's local. And so I reached out to Anton and Anton recommended uh tyrone i said mm-hmm. dude that sounds amazing and uh brave wilderness had given me a budget to get everybody paid so we got tyrone on the payroll for being a professional uh, handler and fixer for the site and then we all got to hang out and work on some really cool film projects about reptiles for yeah i think it was like two weeks right or like yeah. two days, something like that so yeah. it was rad it was honestly it was a lot of fun and then of course whenever you got a group of like a mix match of like film crew and field folks, you have a thousand comical stories happening at the same time. Like mm-hmm. uh, the the film crew wanted to have nice lunches and, and then bottles of water having black fungus mold floating in them. And, you know, like everything else that happens just because like the random settings um, getting, getting kind of lost um, you know, figuring out how to get to these locations and how far away are they, the different players and scenarios. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of like true, like friendship building in those timelines. Cause it's like kind of high pressure, high stress, but not really at the same time. It's just like a lot of fun, fun, like-minded activities, uh, yeah. that everybody's working on. Yeah, a lot of non-stop go, go, go. I mean, like one of the times when we're down in St. Lucia, you know, we're having lunch with the crew and then we sort of get the snake call out um, in, in one of the local <laughs> hotels for a cobra. And yes. I'm like, I'm like, cool, I'm down to go. Like lunch can wait. And the rest of the yeah. team is, the, everyone else is like, oh, you know, it's, it's fine. We don't really want to go. And then Mario, uh, part of the very building skit, he was like standing up. He's like, he was frothing at the bit. He's like, yeah, let's go, let's go. So, he, so about it. Yeah, so, so about it. Yeah, so we just shot over there, like, and when we get to the call, it, it was just a forest cobra. So, I mean, the guy, um, Mario had, had sort of handled one a couple of days prior. I was like, man, this is all on you. You give me the GoPro. I filled him sort of catching it, you know, just for his own sort of 
uh, yeah. memories type of thing. And I was just like, yeah. And uh, it was just like two, like just like two homies just going out catching some snakes <laughs> down in cool. South Africa. So, and yeah, then we, uh, after after that lunch, we went and got some good photos at the release site, which was also super fun. And we had like the like another random scenario of, of like regular people driving to this end lot to turn their vehicles around, and there's like four of us taking pictures of this Ford's Cobra and everybody is like, I think there's only two cars that pass us or maybe it was just one, but like, I remember everybody in that vehicle just like jaw drop looking at us as the Cobra's sitting up hooded. And like, we're all super excited. Like this is such a cool snake. Mm-hmm. You know, we're excited. It, it's, it's life has been saved because it's being pulled out of like, obviously an area where someone probably was going to kill it. And then it's going to get released into pristine habitat so we're all like nerding out because we're getting photos and it's about to be like actually like just like go go and (laughs) people are driving past us like what the hell are these guys doing like they are crazy because it looks like we're just hanging out with our pet cobra almost yeah like it's just pure comedy and then um yeah like that's that was like every day every couple hours something was happening (laughs) something crazy was happening yeah, the trip. I think Robert, you definitely would have sat in the van a couple times. I think you definitely would have tapped. Oh no, I would. Yeah, I would. I would have one of those like plastic balls that would like, like, like it would just be around me the whole time. <laughs> safety bubble. Yeah, safety bubble. Yeah. So, uh, Ty, dude, uh, we're in we're in Sumatra, and I think Robert had gone once or twice already, and mm-hmm. we are working with one of our ranger partners up in northern Sumatra in the Lassiri ecosystem. And it's extremely biodiverse up there. Lots of wildlife, lots of cool species. And Robert somehow in his brain had self-convinced himself that snakes didn't exist there. It didn't even occur to me. Like, there's he's in the jungle. And, like, the first thing I had told him about was, like, hey – actually be cautious about the tigers there like literally be cautious about the tigers they're killing full-size cow like just in that area so when Mm -hmm. you're walking at night stay on the lit trails and walk with somebody else and you know these are Sumatran tigers they're smaller but they're still big enough to take us down and so his brain's like tigers elephants orangs you know all these other critters leeches mostly the leeches (laughs) leeches but the he did not believe me i had to show him a of actual video that panned from one of the housing areas to where the snake was to prove to him that there are all sorts of vipers over there and like once i did like it was like he swallowed a sour grape or something he was just like (laughs) i still don't i'm not 100 percent sure that indonesia has snakes but it but (laughs) i've never been one to steer me wrong but it's weird though because I was literally running through thickets. I was like sticking my hand in cracks. I mean, I was having a, I was having a grand time. And then he's like a, he's like a kid in a tide pool, not realizing yeah, that he was sticking his hand next to like a you know a yeah. blithering octopus. I was like, I'm just having a great time, living my best life. I'm going, you know, like in these trees, and it never even occurred to me, not even well, not even once. Well, I mean, yeah, in Sumatra, you, you think you get that equatorial spitting cobra. So I mean, they've got some big yeah. snakes too. It's it's not yeah. just the cute little vipers. I mean, there's some big dangerous snakes out there right. we're crossing indonesia off my place to go <laughs> <laughs> yeah or, um, or if i'm going um, you guys are coming with me and you guys are just gonna have to go in front of me dude the, the beautiful island of bali um has 
multiple daily house rescues of cobras in really in rafters and houses and stuff um when i was on bali uh this was after we had done uh you that time robert when you and i had actually done ujan klon and yeah uh, sumatra so we did western java and sumatra for patrol surveys and site surveys and census and ranger gear stuff Mm -hmm. um the, that timeline when I left to go over to Bali, um, the I got in touch with the local guys who do all the house rescues, and I was so excited because I was like, they were just again like a bunch of cool guys who just like basically public service rescue um, snakes that get caught up in stuff and venomous snakes that are in people's houses that they're just trying to you know prevent people from killing everything that's yeah. you know, deemed a venomous snake. And I've still followed the guys and they have like every single day, they have a call out every single day. So like, That's you know, crazy. something to look forward to. You're little, you remember the thatch shots? Uh, Robert accidentally walked into, that was you, right, Robert? You accidentally walked into the burial room, the standing burial room. In, in which country? In West Java. Wasn't that you? No, I don't think so. Maybe. Maybe, maybe it was. Okay. So. I go into a lot of rooms, dude. <laughs> I got one I time I walked into, hmm? This is when you were trying to find the bathroom again. This is another. Oh bathroom. no, that was that was the mosque on the on the boat. That's right. That's <laughs> yeah. right. Robert has this tendency to get himself locked into bathrooms. I'm not for a some strong reason. reader, Tyrone, and locks are difficult. <laughs> and I have no idea how he's done it, but it's happened at least five times that were like really comical. But maybe yeah. it was. It might have been Ashley. Actually, um, <laughs> the reason I bring it up is because in in Western Java where the like the job and rhinos are the the sea level is like right there with all the housing and so everything's elevated on platforms the houses are like about a meter off the ground and um that's where the snakes like to cruise through the bottom pillars and the top pillars of the roof and uh i remember one of the times i was following the tail of a snake and i just was like paying attention to the thatch hut and there's like this uh like box thatched hut and i was like oh i wonder what's in there i didn't open the doors but someone on the gcf team had been directed to that thatch hut a day prior and i didn't realize this until i brought the story up but that's the standing burial chamber of all relatives of that one spot and so they were like directed to that building like oh that's where the restroom is and they opened the wrong door because they're right next to each other and it was like a room full of basically bodies and like <laughs> and they're just like oh dear lord what have i just done and like yeah not san diego anymore and it was like and they yeah. i remember it wasn't until i brought the stick i was like hey have you guys seen there's like i was like talking about the walkway i was like if you guys see this like a snake will you let me know because i keep seeing one that like it's just it's just out of reach and it keeps getting itself through the thatch and it's going right over here and the, I thought it was you, but it must have been Ashley. But like, mm-hmm. uh, they're like, oh, well, don't go in that room. I was like, I didn't open the door. I didn't know whose house it was. They're like, well, it's not someone's house. It's someone's. It's like plural. I was like, oh. And then they tell me, I was like, oh, I definitely don't want to go in there. I <laughs> definitely don't want. That's like like Indiana Jones, Temple of Doom style, like open the door. Like, what did I just cross into? Yeah, you'd, like, be, cursed. you'd be definitely cursed for life. Mm. Yeah. Ooh, that's a good topic. So, Tyrone's got to do a lot of different things with reptiles in the communities. Sure. So, Ty's got a lot of tie-ins to 
cultural taboos and folklore. And those are always fun to share for folks, um, especially in Cuisine Natal, the thought with, like, for example, the chameleons. Um, you want to share some of those, Ty? Because uh, those are really good. Yeah, so, I mean, obviously, people think of, you know, a lot of people fear snakes, and, and which is sort of understandable. I mean, snakes can sort of kill you and sort of disfigure you. But um, particularly in Cuisine Natal, a lot of the local communities are petrified of chameleons. And you're really? like, and you're like, but they move really slow. I mean, they're kind of stealthy. I mean, and then you you get to ask why. And I mean, obviously, you know, chameleons have got these sort of um, freely movable eyes. You know, where they look in different directions. One looking forward, one's looking back. Um, and the whole sort of folklore behind it is that chameleons shoot lightning from their eyes, and they can <laughs> essentially, and this is essentially this little chameleon can like curse you. And you know, if you have this running with the chameleon, you can essentially die. Um, mm-hmm. so what happens is a lot of a lot of people even like the younger kids in the communities will see these chameleons crossing the roads and they'll literally beat them and usually they beat them and they go straight for the eyes so they'll poke sticks in their eyes you know just so these poor chameleons for most of the times they're not even dead they, their eyes are just gouged out of their heads um and you know they'll just destroy these chameleons thinking they either are shooting lightning out their eyes and, and they bring these bad omens um, really? and, and all the and there's there's also certain species of snakes that have different sort of like folklores attached to them. Um, there's there's a one snake they say that has a feather um, on its head and it swims on top of the grass. And you, you're trying to understand like what could that possibly be? But I mean, yeah. when you when you think about it logically, you know maybe something like a black mamba or, or even a wormslung. You know when snakes are shedding, you know that that shed comes off their heads and 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 it could sort of sort of blow in the breeze looking like a feather but essentially these people are convinced that there's a snake with a feather on its head that sort of swims through the top of like tall grass um, mm. and that can essentially kill you and then there's also people a lot of the same sort of a lot of within the zulu culture um, people are petrified of frogs um yeah they, yeah they'll see a frog and they also they'll just kill it or you know in a lot of these places in the rural little communities you know a lot of the little randavals or the huts don't have doors so if, mm-hmm. if the frog then enters the hut, everyone clears out of the hut and they, they won't go back in the hut that same night. They'll just be like, really? oh, we're going to go you know, sleep with the neighbors or sleep somewhere else. But they won't go because of these little frogs. And just like a normal frog and toad, I mean, there aren't any sort of poisonous, like potentially lethal or dangerous frogs in the whole of Africa. But yeah. if people are like, oh, this, if there's a frog in there, I'm, I'm not going in there. Um, so it's... It's 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 so deeply ingrained within the culture with the, the hatred and fear of snakes and reptiles and chameleons that you can't, mm-hmm. you know, as a I say the word loosely, but like as a Western as a Westerner as a Western society to try tell these people like, hey, you know, your actual your generations of cultural beliefs are total garbage and they don't mean anything. You know, you can't. It, it's just a battle that you're never going to solve am- amicably. You know, you you, sure. you, know, you just can't yeah, tell. Someone, it's a clash. Yeah, you just can't go up and be like, yeah, your culture's total garbage, you know what I mean? Because then you're probably just going to get stabbed by someone yeah. or, or beaten by someone just because you're essentially in the Zulu community. <laughs> That's yeah. Especially in the Zulu community, they're not going to take your, your words of corrective criticism well. They're going to be like, oh, yeah? It's just like, okay, here we go. Yeah, yeah here's, here's my assegai straight into your, your side. But essentially what it comes down to is just blatant, like it's a blatant disrespect, you know, for another person's culture um, at the end of the day. So you totally have to be sensitive. I mean, 
you know, when I go and remove snakes from houses and even sort of people that, um, you know, that aren't terrified of snakes, you've got to try reason with them and, and try to see things rationally. I mean, just this week, uh, a lady had a cobra down here in Cape Town in her car. Um, and I went there, I couldn't find the cobra. She's like, oh, she wants to sell the car. I'm like, well, that's a little bit extreme. Uh, and then the next day she saw the cobra again and then she calls me, can you come with me? Let's go to the mechanic and let's totally strip the car. We took off all the, well, I say we, the mechanics did. I just stood there with a hook stick and a torch looking cool. Uh, they took the wheels <laughs> off. <laughs> they took the wheels off. They took the bumpers off. They took all these sort of bash plates under the, under the carriage. They hoisted it up on the wheel lift. I was there for about three and a half hours. Um, we totally didn't find the snake. Uh, so it was the biggest waste of time. But I mean, that lady still says, she's like, she's definitely going to sell the car. She's like, there's no way she can live knowing that there's a cobra in her car. But I mean, the chances yeah. of the cobra being in the car were so slim, you know, it, like you, you're, you're driving a good sort of 30 minutes to get to the mechanic. That snake's going to get so hot inside the car. He's just going to, you know, sort of flop out the car. But yeah. it's, uh, it's, it's the same everywhere you go in the world. I mean, people are usually irrationally fearful of snakes and, and just things they don't understand. I mean, to put it in perspective, yeah. you know, I'll wrangle these big cobras, these mambas, you know, without even thinking about it. Like, it's it's no big deal. It's almost, mm -hmm. it almost becomes like you're on autopilot. You're just like, oh, snake, bucket, tong, safety, catch, whatever. But, you know, when we're out in the field, we're herping, you know, we're, we're sifting through trash, we're, we're, we're looking for creatures. When I see things like centipedes, um, that that's pretty much my, my limit. Like, I can't, like, I can't. That's a kryptonite. Yeah, and I, I, don't deal, I don't deal well with those guys at all. That was what was so funny was a couple times we had brought up when we were doing the film project, it was uh, baboon spiders and a couple other things. You're like, nope, yeah. not doing it. Too many not legs. Not getting close to them. Yeah, you Too many legs, that's things. right. Uh, what is it? I, I know you guys get them in the States as well. And they're pretty much most of the world. They, they call them a camel spider. It's sort of. Oh, um, yeah, yes. And they sort we of. Here? I think yeah, we you do. guys get them in some of the oh. deserts. And I think, yeah, they, it's sort of like a. A spider cross scorpion cross like the pure depths of hell. I don't know, and they just they move erratically, and yeah, no, that's that's a big yeah. no from me. I've got to say, those are definitely um, on my creepy crawlies oh, list. I still, I still deal with them, <laughs> but like, I I, I will not um, I will not enjoy removing them from the house. I actually removed a camel spider from my house uh, about uh, I don't know. It was it was a couple months back, but it was tiny. Really? It was tiny, tiny, tiny. I mean, like, literally half an inch. It was, like, the size of a dime. And I was like, that looks like a camel spider. And, like, and I was like, it is a camel spider. And then I, like, jumped in and, you know, Googled it. And I was like, okay, yeah, this species is found in San Diego County. I'm like, trippy, but I have found bigger ones, much bigger ones in other parts of the U.S. Like, the size of, like, a, closer to the size of, like, a, a wolf spider which is, you know, it can be, I want to say like it was an inch and a half. That was creepy as hell. They're, they, they creep me out. I'll, again, I'll still deal with them, but like, I'm just like, Oh, I don't know why you make me itch. Like, I'm just like, Ooh, that's just yeah. not. Mm -mm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just a weird thing. Cause they're not dangerous at all. I mean, you can pick them up, they can bite or, you know, but it's not like you're in immediate danger. I, I know they don't, they don't have venom or anything like that, but I'm just like, no, nope, it's, it's a big no from me. Mm-hmm. But I mean, yeah, everyone's just like a creepy. 
Yeah, everyone's got something that they just, you know what I mean? The wires in your brain just don't connect right when you see them. And for me, it's those guys. I'm yeah. just like, yeah, it's a, it's a big no. Um, just to, on, a, on a slight change of topic, a sort of um, in line, I suppose. I know um, when I was, when Mike was on, we were chatting about it quite a bit um, about the sort of the reptile trade um, in general, you know, whether yes. it's sort of down in South Africa or to the States and Europe. Um, and that's just another thing. You know, when I was doing the book, I was reading a lot about all these imports and exports of of, of reptiles around the world, um, mm -hmm. and it's it's a big thing for me. It's part of an educational thing. You know, when when you're when you're in the US, you go to a pet store. I mean, probably not people like you and I that are going into these pet stores, but the general public is. You know, you see this this lizard or this chameleon from Madagascar. You know, that's like a wild, like a, you know, and there's no shame about it. You know, people will be like, "This is a wild caught chameleon from Madagascar." Or this is a wild caught snake from um, Tanzania, or whatever the case is, you know. And people are buying these animals. Generally, they're riddled with endoparasites. They've been shipped across the world. They've been sitting in a sort of plastic deli cup for two weeks. So by the time you get it home, you know, it lives for a couple of weeks and it dies. And you're like, oh well, that sucks. And you just go back to the pet store. You go back to the same breeder, and you know, you're just buying more and more of these animals, not yeah. not thinking of where they actually come from. Um, you know what I mean? There's there's a wild population somewhere that's been decimated by the sort of um, people don't like to call it like illegal collecting. They'll they'll just say it's it's wild harvesting. It sounds a lot um, it sounds a lot nicer. Almost when you, you think of the you know like the food you eat, it didn't come from a factory farm or a chicken battery. Mm -hmm. It came from a organic free range pen. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's it's much in the same. No, absolutely. But yeah, uh, yeah, I'm glad you bring that up, dude, because that's a, that's it's a big issue and i know we talked a lot about it and you know it's not surprising that it's not in the forefront of so many other people's like lives because this is like what we do like you know work in conservation and work with all these cool different species but um for those listening this has even happened in california um and ty i don't know if we got a chance to talk about this but like um back in the day folks here in california could collect uh, desert tortoises and rosy boas and you can still collect certain species with uh, the right permits here in california but things got decimated in a very short amount of time population wise because of the volume of people that would take them out of the wild not care for them properly they die and it was treated like a quote goldfish pet where they just like oh, i'll just get another one and then they're just stemming the fuel of the the whole cycle of take from the wild and it's it's a, a problem in many exotic pet trade issues where proper care, proper husbandry, proper sourcing, proper adopting is an issue. So like um, there was a, a gal who's working with African gray parrots in Central Africa. And one of the biggest things she realized that was going to stem the population decline was the local, um, the locals who like to have the African grays as pets was getting them to provide proper husbandry because on average they they would live six to six months to a year with them where they should be living, you know, much, much longer than that. And mm. the export issue where people are like buying these birds and like, but I want a parrot and I want this thing that talks to me, but they're completely depleting an entire swath of populations. And it's, really bad in reptiles because people kind of put reptiles in the same mentality as like fish like oh they don't 
they're not smart. They don't know. There's, you know, they don't feel pain or like all these other weird things. So like they become largely abused in the system for people who are like throwaway pets, essentially like, Oh, I'll just get this thing. And if it dies, I'll just get another one. It's fine. It's such, it's such an issue. I mean, a reason why I was a friend of mine just before we were on this call, I was, I was having a WhatsApp conversation with someone and they were saying, oh yeah, you know, they're going out tomorrow in the field, um, back in KZN, they, they want to go look for bird gutters, for example. And the guy mm-hmm. was like, yeah, they want to go look for bird gutters because he collected a pair of bird gutters from the same site they're going to, you know, a couple months back. But oh, now the male died. Obviously, husbandry related issues. So now this guy's going back to the same site and just to give some context, obviously, these, these bird adders, these small sort of dwarf adders, they don't occur in high densities, you know, across their, their sort of habitat. So, I mean, by removing an adult pair from an environment, it's, it's like a big deal, you know. And now they're going back to remove another one because essentially, back in KwaZulu-Natal, the wild harvesting of reptiles for both personal and commercial gain is completely legal. You don't need any permits. But for me, it, a bigger issue comes down into the, the like the ethics and the moral the morality of it. I mean, just because it's illegal doesn't necessarily mean it's right. If if you know what I mean, I mean it's like anything. With, 100%. Whether, whether it's fishing, I mean you you may have a fishing permit to collect or go fishing and take home you know three or four trout or or sea bass or whatever the case mm-hmm. may be. But if you're going to go in there and take like five times the coiter that you're supposed to have, that's you know, that's depleting your adult stock. And, you know, you're going to go back to that same fishing spot or, as you say, with the herping, you're going to go back to that same herp spot, look for these bird gutters, and they're not going to be there because people have taken them out of the wild. So it's, as someone who's into sort of, you know, the herping and, and more of a naturalist sense, you know, you almost don't want that sort of stuff happening because you, you, you can go back to a site and that animal can become locally extinct. You know, Very just from, just, yeah, just from, just from people over, I won't even say over collecting because there shouldn't be any collecting uh, in, in this particular sense. So it's, yeah, man, it, it's such a tough, it's such a tough thing to deal with. And I've been out in the field with guys before where we perhaps find a rare animal or something, a rare snake or, or something high on someone's walk, like wish list. And, you know, there's no way in hell, I'm like, there's no way you're collecting that animal getting back into my car and we're driving it back to your place to keep in a, like yeah. a tub or a, or a tank. I was like, that's, that's not going to happen. And it's at least some heated arguments, but at the end of the day, you, you get into sort of, um, I suppose they're, they're two different breeds or of herpers. You know, there's the guys that are in super into the field, like that. I am, you know, we're, we're out photographing things or taking data, you know, writing papers, writing books, whatever the case is, and you're releasing everything. It's like fishing. It's like catch and release. And then you get these guys that are going out purely to collect stuff, to bring it home and shove it in a little plastic container on their shelf, you know, where it sits on a sort of paper towel with a little clean water bowl. And it's, yeah, yeah, it's such a, there's such a big divide. And that's why I generally don't like, um, like rolling in the circles with a lot of these collectors, you know, you sort of, they'll they'll always sort of um, push you for information. They're like, Hey, I saw you, I saw you got a burger last weekend. And they're like, hey, where was it? You know, we want to go have a look. And I'm just like, yeah, not in this lifetime, buddy. That's, uh, <laughs> you can't be divulging the goods like that. Well, this is a good topic we were talking about last time, too, is there are people who are doing that and then they're internationally exporting them and they change the locality or the subspecies description of them. They get mm-hmm. a legal export stamp 
and then the American and European pet trade are the source of the demand. Just like the issues with ivory and rhino horn and pangolin, Europeans and Americans are fueling extinction for pet hobby trade, and the ethics of it is extremely damaging to multiple people. Like the people collecting, it's against their own goodwill or against their own good, you know, like daily standing. Uh, it's a short-term process that leads to collecting other species um, and then a fringe network of other activities because of who you're dealing with. And it's interesting because it's something that the herp communities in the United States have specifically started to attack and strategize on how to combat it. It's more so in the last 10 years, I know for sure. Like, So like a lot of folks... Um, have targeted certain species like banning them from import, working with our uh, different uh, fish and wildlife and USDA, um, you know, authorities to get certain things red listed or removed from, you know, possible import or getting a scientist to do a study so that the survey can prove that they're endangered or critically uh, in critical like habitat, you know, need or something like that, like a keystone species. And one of the things that's happening specifically in the United States is, a lot of people, at least in California, in that market, who are, are the ones that are buying, they won't buy wild caught anymore. And that automatically puts both parties out of business, the one collecting and the one that's importing. If, if they can't import these animals, then it's like this flux that reverses it. Now, the, the in contrast aspect is there have to be people who are ethically breeding captive bred populations at some point they came in from the wild but like bearded dragons are a good example of something like that leopard geckos and even some dart frogs um where like the certain species of dart frogs were were brought in in high volumes and people were like especially like the ones that really cared the true hobbyists were like this isn't sustainable we need to collapse this so outbreeding imports and providing healthy ethically raised you know, captive born and bred completely defeated the import market, but there's still a lot of shady players who are like um, pulling in these species in extremely high numbers and the death rate is really high. So it's not like just the take is the problem. It's the replenishing factor as well. Like they take a thousand out and 600 to 700 of them may die before they even get to the pet trade. And then they have to order another thousand and another thousand. And it's just absurd. So like it, there are some weird crossroads coming into play that are, are closing it. And then also many species that people are just saying like, this shouldn't be kept. This shouldn't be taken. This shouldn't be kept. It shouldn't be a thing. Um, because we are seeing like local population extinctions of several types of species in the reptile category um, in all across the globe because this like throwaway pet idea, like, oh, I'll just get a new one. Oh, it's only 20 bucks. Oh, it's only yeah. $15. It has no real worth. Um, and like, that's something like, sadly we have to combat and it's legal, you know, it's technically still legal, even though like most of us know, like you shouldn't be pulling things out of the wild, like Fijian iguanas and, Galapagos tortoises, but someone pulls it out and someone gets so excited, like, oh my god, I want to buy that. And you're like, don't buy that. That <laughs> thing, like, just inherently from what you know, those are two massively known species. Like, 
they're critically endangered and they're extremely important to their habitat and there's no way in hell this thing came through the right channels and someone's like oh, i'll pay two grand for it you're like you're literally you're just fueling that system so yeah it's it's such a it's such a problem and such an issue i know it's and people often have the mortality particularly down here um obviously not not really in the export market but in the local you know when these rare indigenous reptiles pop up people are like oh you know um this guy's selling it if i don't buy it someone else is going to just buy it you know what i mean it's that vicious Uh, cycle of like oh i may as well get it before the next person does but I think the biggest issue for me in terms of the, the export import is, is the thing of education. I mean, like, like Mike was saying, whereas, you know, we've got people here in South Africa that are catching wild caught animals. They're sort of fixing the permits, fixing the paperwork, and they're sending them, you know, to a lot of the guys in the States and a lot of guys in Europe under the false pretense that these animals are captive bred. So, I mean, exactly. you're, you're on the other side of the world. You're like, holy crap, I'm excited about getting these um, these house snakes or these boomsung or these black mambas, I'm getting them from some uh, South African breeder. This is all great. So they, I think, I'm sure a lot of them will, in the back of their mind, know, okay, this, these things aren't bred in captivity. How is this one guy breeding tons and tons of them and no one else is doing it? Um, so I, I think the onus also comes down on the buyer's perspective as much as it, as the, the crooked guys down, you know, your, your sort of your exporters, um, but yeah. it's it's such a problem because it's just of the attitude of like oh you know there's there's plenty more where that come from you know we'll, we'll just go collect a whole bunch when we look at animals like the armadillo lizards down here in the deserts of sort of the northern parts of South Africa um, these little lizards live in family groups you know so it's quite easy for poachers to go to a particular rock crevice particular rock outcrop they just use crowbars they crowbar the rocks apart and they'll collect you know 20 30 of these lizards at a time. And then they go, they either smuggle them directly because there's no, they're ascites animals. So there's no ways they're going to get sort of exports. So once those lizards land in Europe, they'll be like, oh yeah, I've just, I've had this like miraculously hidden colony of armadillo lizards. Now I'm going to decide to sell them. You know, it's, and then people are under the onus that it's sort of captive bred. And So and this is the good. exact species I was talking about in the last podcast with, with Scott Tregesser and um, Robert, I was mm-hmm. talking about the armadillo lizards and the giant sun gazers that folks will go to these, these their, their habitat isn't massive. It's not like they're found everywhere. And then there's clusters of them when you find them. And then someone will launder them as a different armadillo lizard species yeah. from a different country because they'll drive them into Zimbabwe or Zambia or sometimes even as far as Togo, they'll get them all the way up there. And then at that point, there are nondescript armadillo species, you know, of lizard and people get away with that, that cycling of permits and it's total population. It's like dropping a nuke on a city. Like you're taking away all the breeding age animals. You're taking away babies and all sorts of different structures. And these, they, they live like you were saying, like in like a, like a, almost like a beehive colonies, like in yeah. a miniature scale, like they live in pockets. So you could get like 20 or 30 in some aspects in like a square mile and maybe more depending on where you're at. And it's really frustrating because um, 
that's one of the details like GCF works on is is targeting specific traffickers who launder permits and they do it with more than one species and a lot of times it takes a while to catch up with them because they're doing these very very coy quote legal things and you got to follow this entire thread trail and figure out how are they doing this because they're getting through a lot of quote legal channels and you find Mm -hmm. out like aha here it is and it's comes back to some simple factors of protection one consumers need to be aware and two authorities getting them more up to speed is also part of the system but then the the key factor again is coming back to protected habitat space if those little guys were for example in the same reserve that rhinos were found in or the area wasn't like necessarily like farmland or you know grazing scape for cattle or something like that if they were in a protected space, they wouldn't be so easy to access, but not everywhere has that luxury or that option or that structure. So it comes back again to the buyers not creating the demand and unscrupulous people who play the system getting caught and actually, actually punished for their crimes. Not like, uh, here's a, here's a fine of $250. And you're like, seriously, they made they made twenty thousand US off of that and their fine is two hundred and fifty dollars. Like no prison time, no nothing. Like yeah, it seriously. It's not it's not enough of a deterrence. I know um within the last twelve months they stopped a German national coming out of South Africa. He had a, a suitcase full of tortoises of these ten really? these ten tortoises from the deserts of Namakuland and he they were trying to get them over to Europe. Um, yeah, and I think they, they got him a pretty, a pretty hefty fine. I think it was about 400 or 500,000 rand, um, which I mean, once you convert that into euros and the, the value of the animals they had was into the millions of euros. So, I mean, it's like Mike was saying, it's sort of a, a bit of a slap on the wrist, but it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's quite funny how, you know, people start moving with different things. I mean, these guys were caught with all these tortoises and they also had something ridiculous. Like, I think it was 300 grams of heroin. So I mean, these, uh, yes. these that reptiles. Was the, wasn't that the same guy who got caught with the radiated tortoises? Yeah, yeah. It's just, so I mean, these guys are peddling animals. They're peddling drugs. And I mean, heroin of all cases. I mean, it's not exactly a a glamour drug either. So I mean, it's these guys are filthy, man. <laughs> we we uh, we joke here in the states um, when I when I work with local law enforcement, like state based or U.S. based in the wildlife factor. Some of the jokes are between the wardens is it, like unregistered truck equals unregistered gun equals reptiles at the home and like all of this this unregistered trail and in reverse it actually happens more frequently um they'll find somebody who's been caught up in the system for poaching of local wildlife or international wildlife like bringing in you know these exports someone finds out about it they follow a tip they go to the home and this dude's got like a house full of you know, it might be stilettos, which is a, you know, a lapid species, or might be a bunch of rattlesnakes, which he can't keep without special permits. Maybe it's an alligator. And there's all these random things like alligator in the bathtub. And then the dude's got like 40, 40 assault rifles, two unregistered vehicles, and it's cooking meth in the garage. And you're like, and then this guy, you, you find these guys in, in pure public, like out in the normal, like, at a reptile show and they're like, you know, yeah, I breed these things. I, you know, I'm like one of the world's best breeders at this. And you're like, 
there's no way you're breeding them. Like that thing looks like it's riddled with parasites. Like the thing's sickly. And like, so the, the people that you're fueling and providing success to in that same system is super, super dodgy. Like, you know, it's not like you're like, it's not like the Girl Scouts of America, you know, doing a endangered species breeding project and you're fueling a conservation site. You're, you're funding drug dealers too. Like yeah, traffickers true. hand in hand always play more than one card. So especially like rhino and elephant, we see that they tie into weapons and drugs and human trafficking all the time and all the way down to reptiles guys. Like the guys doing reptiles, they're always, I can't say always, but many of the guys that are moving illegal shipments of animals whether they're birds or reptiles are most likely doing another type of illegal movements so that doing can be drugs else. weapons who knows and it's like we are we as the public need to be better informed and make better decisions because you may be fueling a local drug dealer with your purchase of your you know your cute little lizard that you wanted or your cute snake that you got and you feel so good about rehoming it and you just put, you know, twenty dollars into the the savings account of a, mm. a drug dealer in Cuisine Natal. Like you know what I mean, like yeah, the it's, world it's, is connected. Yeah. it's it's funny though, when you mention all, all the sort of other related stuff, you know, the animal stuff, there was a guy up here in Gauteng, um, in the sort of a the, the sort of place that this guy was in. It's it's well known to be sort of a, a bit of a, a redneck hillbilly kind of a, a place. And he also he had some illegal snakes, not on permits, but nothing, nothing sort of like a big deal. It was just sort of like legislated and stuff. You know, he should have had permits, but he didn't. But then they found out this guy had a fully grown tiger living in his backyard in this like enclosure. Of you course. know, like a full grown tiger. And next, the reason they actually, they confiscated the animal. Um, apparently he had permits for it or something. But next to where this guy was living there was a preschool for young children. So, I mean, he had this, really? he had this massive tiger and just over the fence is like a bunch of little kids that play out in the yard. So, I mean, <laughs> the safety aspects and it's just, yeah, it was, you just can't make that, that kind of stuff up. Yeah. That stuff happens in the United States still. There are still many States where it is legal to have dangerous. what I would quote as dangerous, exotic wildlife without a permit. So like there are a lot of species, which we haven't closed the you know the gap on essentially for ownership of people who one should not even own a cat or a dog but two they've got tigers and bighorn sheep and random you know buffalo and bison and they've got it in a flimsy wooden fence next to you know the regular family next door and that's a whole other fish issue i mean like mm -hmm. that's like tiger king like tiger king and that mentality of like cub petting and like what we call backyard tigers they're like they're not genetically they're, they're so far inbred because they've been in these like backyard settings or like poor roadside quote zoos that not even really zoos they're just like people's hoarding collection of cats you know they're so genetically muddled and unrepresented that they're not even they're not even like identifiable as the species they once were like They'll be like, oh, I got a Bengal tiger in my backyard. You're like, and you like, if you were to run DNA on that, like the breeding programs would be like, dude, that thing is like so inbred. It's closer to a Labrador. And, you know, <laughs> it's not even, it's not even a tiger anymore. And, and there's, there's so many ethics issues with the ownership, the idea 
the mentality, a lot of the people too, within the mentality of the ownership, it's like ego, pride, power. Um, you get that with venomous snakes. You get that with big cats. You get that with like some people who have like massive fish tanks and they own sharks and stuff. Like <laughs> there's this random thing of like, I have ego and power. Have you seen my pet tiger? And you're like, what the hell? <laughs> but and, you know, you know what a big thing I find with, with those kind of people and that mentality um, we get a, a lot down here, and I'm sure it's the same with, with you guys pretty much around the world, that these people that are keeping these captive snakes, captive lizards, captive tigers, you know, whether it's monkeys, they all have this big idea that it's conservation. They're like, this is mm -hmm. conservation. We're captive breeding these animals for conservation. A, a captive, in my mind, I mean, Mike, feel free to stamp right over if I'm wrong, but in my mind, there's no conservation value in a captive animal that's going to live it the rest of its life in captivity. That's never going to be released. That's never going to be in a wildlife. It's sort of a breeding program to be released. If you're just keeping something in captivity to make, to make money off and profit, like I don't see the conservation value in that. So you've, you've nailed it on the point. There's two sides of it. So for a breeding program, so, so for a captive management program to benefit the wild, it has to do two things. One, it has to limit or reduce or e extinguish the import factor. So does breeding this species collapse the export market for these animals? And two, does it have a, a, a genetic plan, aka like mapping? You're not just breeding father, daughter, mother, brother, like situations in these environments with a goal to re-release. So like if, for example, if you're going out and you're collecting like 30 wild tortoises and then you're just, you're just selling them to people that you have to understand, like that is just pet trade. That is yeah. not mm -hmm. conservation. If, for example, like I've, I've actually had the opportunity to be part of some pretty cool projects in the past in starting to work on a couple more where groups of people, not just a single person, unified bodies and organizations go, okay, we're all going to select these species and we're going to breed them. We're going to carefully select breeding population members, not just take 40 from one square kilometer. Cause that's the other thing that happens. People are like, I have a breeding project. And they took it. They took all the animals from like a, this tiny area. So they're all inherently somewhat related to each other. Um, you know, if you look at like, if you're looking at the map of the United States and you look at California and you wanted to do a very proper breeding program, you would take one from very far distances. So establishing what is their environment and habitat. And let's say it's, let's say it's five square miles or, you know, 10 kilometers squared. And you pick a breeding pair from each section. And then what you do is you pair those up and then you keep track of it and then when you keep track of it again are you reducing the import at the same time as you're tackling the import issue at the same time as you are planning a release so i got to work on this with uh, poison arrow frogs um about 10 years ago so phylobate terribilis the erratus um and a couple of the tinctorius family and they are no longer getting imported almost at all like yeah. it just collapsed and ruined the import market for them and the good news is now is it's like healthy healthy options versus like okay you're just 
you're just going to pull these in from the wild. An extinguished one market, it's a very specialist market, so it's not like overtaken. But then like in the same sense, there are guys who are on the other wing of that who are working on the habitat securement and the reintroduction because chytrid has wiped out local populations as well, which is a fungus. And so like those categories have to be involved if it's conservation, because if you're just taking them and selling them, you are not, you're not actually doing any conservation work. Like, sorry to break it to you. You're pretty much a legal poacher. Like you, you, I can't even tell you. I, I think we talked about it when I was there. Like, I rescue reptiles all the time in the United States from people who got a tortoise and it, it's inconvenient now because it's been alive for 20 years. They got a tegu and they don't know how to take care of it and it bit their hand and they don't want it anymore. They have a myriad of different snakes and I just don't like them anymore and I'm tired of them so I'm getting rid of them. And so I get contacted regularly for these animals and it's like, you know, mom and dad get son a tortoise because he's he likes reptiles and dinosaurs when he's five years old and oh it's his favorite animal ever until he's 15 and then he then he's his mindset changes and oh he's been sitting in a cage for five years and he's just a sad lonely tortoise and well now he went to, to school and you know college and university and he didn't take it with him so we're, we're looking to rehome him and you get all of these animals that live a long time when they're cared for and prime example is I have two rhino iguanas, two full-size rhino iguanas. That That is the exact story of what happened. Like, everybody loved them, and they live a really long time. They're big. They require a specialist diet. And um, I work with one of the um, all, all exotic wildlife, uh, exotics and wildlife hospitals here in San Diego. And they'll call me and be like, hey, we have another surrender and I work with the other rescues in town. Like there's one for tortoises specifically. And there's a couple others that do like mixed wildlife and, um, you know, try to get it to an end goal that doesn't end up in it suffering or, you know, being euthanized. And the sad thing is, is like, that's, that's the other side of this quote, folks selling these things. Like ah, I sold a tortoise that lives for 110 years. And this family is, you know, like they want it for 10. So then that thing gets shuffled out. Like I've got a, I got several species just like that too, where people, they bought them for, you know, let's say $20 and they went into the vet and they're like, they don't want to pay the vet bill. Cause they're like, well, it was only $20 when I bought it. And it was like, well, that doesn't mean fixing. It's not going to be true medical care costs. Like, you know, someone gets an imported iguana and it's got an upper respiratory infection. Cause they didn't, take care of it and now it needs to get treated and have antibiotics and get fluids and they're like no screw it just euthanize it and the vets are like we're not euthanizing it because this is fixable and then they they call me and they say hey we can we can consignment or not consign it we can um have the owner relinquish ownership we'll treat it if you can find it at home and i'll be like cool i've probably done that with like not no joke like about a hundred animals in the last two years. And I, I'm very careful with some of the ones I take on. Like, I don't know if I can find that one at home right now or I'll like pass the coin over. And in the last week, honestly, just like literally the last seven days, I've taken in three surrenders, a Russian tortoise, a tegu, and um, another small, like a, a, it's, it's a bearded dragon, but it's, it's a relative, a Rankin's dragon. And each one of them was like, same thing like oh we've had them forever we're just bored of them like (laughs) 
what? Dude, yeah. come on, man. And this comes from the people who full circle. I'm into conservation. I'm just selling these things and breeding them. And, and you're like, most people can't even handle a dog and a dog is easy and a cat is easy. And then you give them a reptile and these, these guys are completely dependent upon your skill set, care and setup. And they require specialist care and stuff. You know, I think this comes back to uh, the consumers again. If you can't care for it, don't have space for it and don't have a long-term plan for it, don't buy it. Like, just don't buy it. Yeah, I um, <laughs> solve so many problems. Yeah, I was I was at a an, a reptile expert years ago, um, and there was this guy. He had he must have had three or four clutches of veiled chameleons that he was busy selling at this expo. But he was selling them for basically the price of a leopard gecko. You know, like next to nothing compared to some of the other breeders that were selling them for like eight nine hundred rand. He was selling his for like two hundred. He's like, oh, he's like, I got so many. I just, I shoot. He's like, he sells them for next to nothing. But like kids would come up and buy these veiled chameleons and, you know, literally just put them, take them home, put them in a fish tank. And he was like, the guy would tell me, he's like, yeah, that, that one's not even going to last like a month. They'll be back and they'll come buy another one. And that's, oh, such, a, that's, such, a, that's such a bad mentality to have because essentially those are the guys that are in it for conservation. But I mean, they're really in it just for the bottom line of making money, which, yeah, it's... It's a, it's a tough line. I mean, everyone's going to make a living somehow. I mean, then again, drug dealers use the same argument. You know what I mean? They're like, well, everyone's going to make a buck somehow. But um, yeah. I don't know yeah, if that's it, the right way. No, it's – it's and again, like I said, you know, it's a good – it's one of those topics that's very – it's very difficult to say, like, this is how it absolutely is. There's a lot of areas, like um, – for example, I know a couple folks who specifically with the armadillo lizards um, – they an import got seized so the importer got caught the import of animals then is sitting in a cargo house waiting for a prosecution of that person the animals that are alive are already dying because of the import process and then the i helped with the relinquished process of like from like u.s fish and wildlife and customs to the like a team of you know, people who actually know how to care for these animals. So they go through this whole rehab process. And then now, uh, so one of my good buddies, he runs uh, like a combination of a, a wildlife education and, and rescue program. And he's one of the main guys I end up giving some of these like individual reptiles to because the reptiles end up having these massive enclosures and multiple people that get to take care of them, essentially, that know what they're doing. And it's a good output. Well, he has ended up with, several of these like these group confiscations and he's very successful at managing them in a wild sense in the sense of like they thrive and they start to breed and so then it's the other issue of like okay isolating them out and like how do we like actually not breed them if there's no end goal which is a comical weird successful problem you have a species that's endangered but you can't really release it yet but now you have now they're doing so well because they're in proper care. They're breeding. Um, they're this comes into a category of like, um, for example, I'll use the Fijian iguanids. Um, technically, each Fijian iguana is under the ownership of the king of Fiji, and so he will tell you to, or it, you have to get permission to hatch an egg. For example, if you're doing a breeding project, the animal is 
at risk, threatened in the home habitat, but people who are successfully managing part of the breeding program actually aren't allowed to hatch the eggs. So they have to freeze the eggs yeah. at certain facilities. Um, same thing happening with certain snake species and crocodilians, um, like Cuban, Cuban crocodiles and other things. A facility takes in rescues. They're thriving at the rescue. They breed. But then the government of that country is like, yeah, no, we don't have a certified program. You can't breed them because you can't. You just can't. And then like the, the rescue's like, okay, so they're endangered and we're successfully breeding them. Why can't we reintroduce these things that are perfectly fine? Like, yeah, there's the world of politics on top of the process of consumerism and the market and the demand, yeah, it gets, and it's, it's real messy, crazy. Yeah, they, um, but, they, sorry, they, they intercepted a big shipment a couple of years back from Madagascar. It went, it went to South Africa and it was going somewhere in the east. And again, like you're saying, one of these facilities took all these snakes, um, and the chameleons, the one that survived. Um, and what they actually did with all the all the snakes, they actually fixed them. They either castrated or um, I forget what the with the female snakes, but they 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 fixed all the snakes so they weren't able to breed. Um, all the ones that obviously um, laid eggs and that sort of stuff, and all the ones that were given live birth, they essentially were just freezing off everything and euthanizing stuff. So it is a it's such a tough it's a tough thing to deal with and tough thing to hear. You're like these poor animals were sort of um, poached now they've come into a healthy environment they stabilize their breeding but then you're euthanizing all the offspring it's a yeah it's a bit of a catch-22 yeah the same thing happened um there's a tip-off that happened about a uh, guy out of the inland empire here in california uh, it's at riverside county he was importing a, an endangered species of uh, spiny-tailed iguana out of mexico and open selling it online and multiple people bought eventually it caught up to him and one of his shipments coming in got seized and i think it was like 57 animals um same thing so now you have separated bodies like you have border patrol and customs seizing it so then a u.s fish and wildlife officer gets put on it and then even though they're animal people quote animal people because they're defending animals they're not animal care folks so they then it, the animals get shifted to like you know a police station of sorts <laughs> a holding bay and the animals are not being cared for so when something like that happens like that's an example of like sometimes when um they'll call me and i'll be like hey we need to move these animals and get them into treatment because they're probably not doing well like we need to get them sorted right away and then they need to get to the right hands like you're not gonna take 30 50 spiny tail iguanas to the humane society who adopts cats and dogs out like sorry they're not going to do it right you need to get it to people who are going to take care of it but then the other side of that is okay now these this endangered species or threatened species is in captive care and management under permitted locations and they're breeding <laughs> yeah what now like Guys, we have to fix the system because we need to be replenishing the wild and rewilding things. And luckily, there are people who are doing that. So, like, it's it's just so much volume. We need to we need to help catch the public's attention and say, like, look, guys, it's just like cats and dogs. Buy ethically. Don't don't support the guy who's got forty dogs in his backyard. <laughs> he's got you know thirty of them are all you know trapped in kennels and he's puppy farming in the backyard. 
like don't support that guy is you know like don't do it um we can slowly break the system you know there's there's a lot of little parts but there are people who know how to do it <laughs> yeah yeah it's it's a forever complex issue i guess and i don't know if they'll ever get to the bottom of it nor ever solve it out it's it's like so many other sort of humanitarian there's just so much there's so many crises and there's so much stuff going on in the world that i think with the particularly the smaller things like reptiles they're so low on the totem pole i mean you'd even know how difficult it is with the with the rhino poaching and the elephants and oh, and, the, and the game i mean and those are big charismatic animals no one cares much for like a weird little snake with you know like a, a little snake that can potentially kill you you know the good news is though honestly there there is movement here um there there actually is so like australia had an issue with poaching and pet trade and they closed their borders to all exports yeah um certain countries in Africa have completely closed their borders to exports of all reptiles and birds. And it's actually made a massive dent in many of these species getting into the pet trade. And now it makes it easier for when someone does move them illegally. It's like, no, this is black and white, dude, that is illegal. (laughs) You are busted. Like you're totally screwed. And uh, it's interesting because like now it's, you know, of the hundreds of countries out in the road, you know, around the world, now it's closing down systematically different things. And in the United States and Europe, closing the loops on the species allowed in. So a country has to close the doors heading out and a country has to, another country has to close the doors heading in. So heading in, yeah. we as the U.S. are a problem with this. Europe and the European Union is a problem for this. And we have to we have to acknowledge that and push on just like fighting the issues with people who can own a tiger in their backyard and a pet hippo and live right next to a, a preschool, you know, <laughs> like yeah. we got to tackle that stuff. Yeah. That's, that's an accident waiting to happen. Robert, you probably are swimming with questions right now. Cause I, I, I know you've been in many of these conversations with many of the different folks on the show mm-hmm. and you've, you've actually been to many of the facilities as well. Like coming from your perspective, not so much as an animal person like what are the things that come to your mind when you kind of like hearing all of this spider web of stuff that happens it's it's interesting you guys say that just because i don't know i think it's the everybody thinks it's like something that happens someplace else and it i think like you mentioned like it's really hard for people to realize like that this kind of thing happens everywhere and and and, there, and it's it, i think for me i get almost overwhelmed at how frequent everything is the case i mean like you can look anywhere and like there's something that could be going amiss or a foul and it's it's kind of scary it makes me sad face why can't we just like animals (laughs) i know i mean so that's important to know though i mean this is actually something uh i hear regularly is the problems are so big people get uh demoralized or yeah like where do you start you know and i think the important thing for me to say from from my court is you can come to Global Conservation Force with these issues. We will help get this solved. And I can say that I am not always going to be the person who can specifically do it, but I work with networks of people who could. So like Scott Trageser, another person who we've had on the podcast, he can help tackle these problems. Um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife, California Fish and Game, and already, and any Fish and Game Authority in the U.S., in your state, there are poaching tip lines. There are information call centers. 
um, there are websites. Um, in the United States, just like in Cape Town, we have a massive issue with people who poach abalone and uh, lobsters or crayfish, as they call them down in Cape Town, and other different marine species. If you see something that looks wrong, seems wrong, you can call a tip line, you can report it, you can report it to us. There's actually a couple apps out there. One's called Wildlife Witness, um, and it links to the organization called Traffic, and they document areas of pressure with trafficking and poaching and pet-related issues and uh, roadside zoo show ethics violations, all sorts of stuff. And that pushes it into the network of experts who tackle these things. And the fastest way to actually make a dent is don't participate in these things. Mm -hmm. um, if you, you know, like, for example, if you're helping someone out, like, let's say your friends are moving, um, I'll share something that happened to me, which I've definitely never talked about on podcasts. And I don't think I've ever put it out on any public thing, but um, in 2009, my life completely got upended because my stepdad um, was diagnosed with breast cancer of all things. So it just also happened to be the same timeline when the housing market was going crazy with loans and inflation rates and all sorts of weird things. And so a myriad of things happened where um, I was in college at the time and I was finishing up and lost, my family lost the house. We uh, had to move into an apartment like really quickly. And then me and my family got dispersed, like, like a hand grenade, like just thrown all over the place. Mm -hmm. And we had a whole life in that house. And I had rescued reptiles there from all sorts of the same situations. And so I had to call on friends and say like, Hey, we're losing our house. We're, I don't know where I'm going to live. I honestly don't know what's going to happen in the next three months. Um, I know you're going to be trustworthy with this animal. Are you willing to adopt it? Like that's not participating in the pet trade issue. Like those were rescues that I had taken on. I never foresaw that future coming life happens. You can help people like that. Like, obviously like I needed help. That was that was a crazy time in my life. It totally changed everything for me. Um, you could never get me to get rid of like, you know, my cat or dog, like literally I would be homeless with my dog. Um, but I can't carry around tanks, you know, and I, <laughs> I was homeless for a while. I was actually homeless for a while. Um, but like, you know, don't go to the pet store and buy something you're not ready for, or you just like, or want just because like, you know, do the research, know the diet, know the setup, know the lifespan and know the source. Like you can adopt things like reptiles and help defeat the system of, you know, uh, overbreeding and import and all that other stuff. And it's not a hard thing to make a dent in, in that aspect. Um, so, you know, so you got apps, you got websites, you got organizations, you got experts to reach out to. And then you have your own participation that you can limit and make a sustainable dent in. It's just like food choices and other things. Um, I'll bring I'll bring this in the fold. You know, like everything you can do every single day, um, like your coffee choice, which we started in episode one. Conservation mm -hmm. and coffee tie in very well to each other because of landscapes. So you can make better choices for tea and coffee, which impact habitats and people positively the same way you can with adopting and taking in pets and however you do that 
or your lifestyle choices, like Tyrone, uh, is you're vegan, right? So yeah. you've made full lifestyle changes, which I don't even know how you do it in South Africa. That is so difficult. It's not like California where there's a lot of things <laughs> like that is seriously so challenging in a very red meat country. Like, I don't know how you pull that off. Like yeah. that is challenging. Cape Town, um, Cape Town's a little bit more open-minded than, than where we were back up in Zuland, where it's sort of like a meat and potatoes kind of place. Um, but even it's more of like a meat and chicken rather than meat and potatoes. Then there'll at least be something for me. But, uh, but yeah, like you said, it's all about choices and, you know, you, you just make sort of ethical and, and moral choices. Same with, like you were saying, with the pets, you know, it's, you don't necessarily have to go buy a snake from a pet store. You can adopt one, say that same similarly how you would um, a dog or a cat from a shelter in, in a yeah. lot even even down here in south africa you can there's there's places where people sit with sort of um abandoned or sort of surrendered reptiles where you can adopt them and, and actually give them a sort of a better life you know yeah uh robert in that same thread where there was i mean i'm sure now saying that there's like hopefully that's less defeating but are there other yeah. thoughts that come to your mind like as listening from somebody who's not involved in like these wildlife specific things like mm -hmm. like knowing it's overwhelming is very important for us to know that because we have to be able to deliver it in a way that finds a successful impact or you know an outcome a positive outcome yeah yeah so i, I it's uh I, i'll tell you what i i will say though that like it's really cool to see like you're like, oh yeah, no, it's it's overwhelming, or oh yeah, no, like it's kind of it's almost like too much kind of thing, but every, but everybody has, oh, I guess, a way to participate, right? So like, if you if you don't like, if you couldn't tell, like even if you had like a hunch, you could. You, there's still like you say, there's numbers to call, there's people to ask. Like, it's very doable, and all you have to do is really just ask one or two follow up questions to really realize like, hey, this guy's legit, or hey, this guy doesn't seem legit. And then yeah, take dodgy. your business elsewhere. <laughs> yeah. You know, it doesn't take very much to like realize like, oh dude, the shady looking guy is probably shady. Yeah. You never know. And you know, all yeah. of us people that like what reptiles tend to be eccentric. So I, I'll throw myself into that category. I definitely <laughs> definitely like, you know, not your quote normal person that's just sitting in a white wall room on a regular couch and yeah. doing nothing. Like I definitely, you know, I'm sure many people listening think it's weird that I get excited to go catch snakes and lizards and take pictures of them. Uh, but you know, you just gotta ask a couple questions. Like you said, it works. Um, but that brings another good point into play. Photography can be harmful and it can be harmless. Yeah. And there's a lot of ethics. We talk about. Yeah. There's a lot of ethics involved with that too. I mean, there's obviously you get like different types of photographers you get guys that won't even touch animals they just want to take photos from a distance and you get guys mm -hmm. like me where if i can you know take a picture of a lizard basking on a rock without disturbing it and get like a natural photo i'll always go that way but i mean in some cases you know when you pull a, a snake off a crossing a road you can't sit there and photograph the snake on a tar road you know what i mean you yeah, you have to get it exactly. set up naturally so it looks fine but then you also get people that will it's such a weird thing because I know people that photograph reptiles, but they don't keep reptiles, right? They don't keep pets, mm -hmm. reptiles, but they'll perhaps, you know, they'll find a reptile, a snake or a lizard somewhere and they'll pick it up and take it with them. And they may take it back home with them an hour away or, 
to a totally different environment. They'll photograph the reptile, then they'll be like, all right, I'm done with you, and they'll just release it somewhere else or release it in their garden, which is so, it like boggles your mind, you know. You're, you're sort of in this way in terms of, I wouldn't quite call it sort of, I mean, obviously photography does have some educational and conservational elements to it, but for the average person, it has little conservation value. I mean, one of one of the main reasons I started getting into photography was I, you know, I was at a, a place where, you know, you'd look on the internet in the early days and you'd be like, cool, there's three photographs that exist of this one animal and they all look the same. And I'd look at them and I'd be like, yeah, these photos all suck. Like I need to see what this animal yeah. actually looks I need to see what this animal looks like. So I would go out, find these animals, find these different variations of color morphs. And then I'd put that out there and share it with everyone else. So, you know, it, it creates more of a hyper awareness. Um, to put it into perspective, um, a couple of years, well, from about 2015, I started getting really heavily into chameleons in Southern Africa, like looking where all these species were with the main goal to find and photograph all of these species of chameleons across the country. Um, and while doing that, I was in some cases finding new populations of these chameleons where they weren't previously known from, or I was finding undescribed species of chameleons that were, you know, not known to science or whatever, or perhaps finding a species that was on, on the precipice of, you know, living in a, a one tiny pocket of uh, forest where it was being like heavily deforested. Um, and, you know, just through the, that awareness of sharing those images, sharing stuff like that, in many cases, we were able to, um, in, in one case, should I say, we were able to conserve that tiny bit of habitat that, that these animals were living in. And that was merely as simple as it sounds as me going out there, finding these animals, mostly by chance, photographing and be like, hey, I found these chameleons in the Eastern Cape. Uh, whereas everything, all the natural vegetation has been cleared and burnt and it's just this one little patch, like we need to do something about this, you know, and we're able to sort of conserve that little bit of habitat and, and stop it from being developed or whatever the case may be. So, yeah, That's photography and really cool. conservation, it, there's there's a definite crossover. But like I was saying, there are these weird people that, you know, will... You, you see it a lot. What, what really kills me is on places like Instagram and Facebook, you, you see these ridiculous, mostly on meme accounts, but you'll see these ridiculous pictures of like a frog with a, with another frog, like sitting on its head. Or you see this, yes. red, you, you see this red eyed tree frog, like just holding on with two fingers off a, off a twig. And, you know, you can see that that frog has been rough handled. It, it's been worked so much that it's on the brink of death, but it looks kind of cute when you put a piece of, text in there that just says hang in there it's monday or some stupid stuff like that you know what i mean and the, the photographers that are taking those photos and doing that stuff that to me borders on animal abuse really um so and that's then most, a really good point most people that's just think really it's, good point most people think it's super cute they're like oh it's a cute little frog meme you know with a, a frog with a banjo and a cowboy hat and you know a cigarette in its mouth i mean like that's just crazy it's, yeah, yeah. It blows my mind <laughs> you know it's like um entry 101 like when you know you're in the field too like it's real it can be really freaking challenging to get photos of these species in the wild it is really difficult lighting placement you know angles the size of them and what you realize is like like uh scott Tyrone, you guys, uh, Scott Tregesser or Tyrone, you guys are really good examples of like, you notice that the animals, like, 
it's in the habitat. Like it's right there. <laughs> like daylight, it's 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 not like in a lab, right? You didn't take it from the wild, put it in a lab and create a whole background screen and then release it in your backyard, you know, like again changing the dynamics of that entire population and the local wildlife and habitat. Um you know, you get these amazing shots that it is so hard for especially reptiles and amphibians to sometimes differentiate between different species. And it takes really good photography to be able to break down like, Oh, okay. I see the difference between these two. If you haven't seen them every day of your life, or maybe you've only seen it once or twice. Um, and the photography can be really powerful when done ethically. (laughs) Um, you gotta, you know, it comes back to another thing. Like, you know, um, if you're breaking their legs and they're dropping tails and you're wrenching them out like off of things and like, you know, they get injured, you're not doing them any service. You're not doing the species any service. You're, you're just trying to get the gram likes. You're, you're literally doing your own thing. Um, and even to reflect earlier on the story, when we're talking about getting some of these species out of the trees, we're using proper equipment and we're all very trained and all being very careful and then releasing these animals right back where that like they come from. So maybe we don't want them in the lodge, you know, for example, but walking them to the wilderness thicket on the outside close to the you know source of water and where like their food would be is going to be, you know, maybe the first step. Or maybe we even know that animal is going to come back five or six times and just simply getting them out of the way of a walkway or the public so that no one gets tagged on accident or they don't get stepped on. That's as simple as it needs to be. You don't have to be like grab these things and transport them six hours away and then release them into some habitat that they don't even actually exist in. And then you're like, I saved them today. Like, you know, (laughs) there's, you got to put the research and time into like what you're going to do. Yeah, because all you've essentially done is just given that animal like a total death wish. I mean, some of the the local sort of snake catchers and stuff we got up here, they have like release spots where they take all the all the snakes they catch across the city and dump them in like one spot, like on the outskirts of the city, which is just like insane to me. Because you've got, for example, a lot of cobras that eat other snakes. So you're just taking all these little snakes you've rescued and you're just like, here we go. All the other snakes. Sacrifice pit. Yeah, like all the cobras I've released last week are literally just going to eat you tomorrow. But I mean, you know, we saved we saved you. I feel good. I get that warm, fuzzy feeling. It's. Yeah. I think. I think. I don't know. I, I think just in the culture and the society we live in, it's it's so it's so sort of egocentric where everyone does people will do things just so they feel good and they feel like they've done good rather than the actual you've done something good for either an animal or either for someone else. You know, it's it's always just about you and. Well, should I say it's all this sort of me, me, me sort of mindset. It's yep. yeah, but I mean, there's not much, <laughs> there's not much we can change about that. Well, we could. Um, I mean, I guess one of the ways is don't reward those people who do that, like the ones standing on top of platforms and jumping around in circles and saying, "Look at me!" You'd be like, "Yeah, you don't deserve the attention." You yeah. know, um, it's, don't don't pay to play that coin slot game. You know. Yeah, I suppose it opens a whole nother can of, you know, people that are involved with wild animals and particularly like on Instagram 
or any of the social media channels that, like you were saying earlier, they do it for the likes. You know, they, they're grabbing these snakes, for example, by the heads and posing for photographs or they're, you know, sitting sitting on a, I don't know, sitting on an elephant for photographs or all that kind of stuff, you know, it's just... Hand-grabbing venomous snakes without tongs just to look yeah. tough. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, you look even tougher when you're sitting in the ICU connected, <laughs> connected to pipes and machines, but I mean, you know... Everyone's and your fingers own. getting melted off, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know what? It's it's all going well till your finger starts to melt off, you know. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> I, I think uh, well, you have to share your scale of of um, venom that you shared with Coyote Peterson and myself and the crew. The uh, melt your finger off levels of like one to five that you had, which I thought was hilarious of like mildly painful to your finger just dropped off <laughs> yeah that's a that's a thing i mean you, you try to give it in people in, in simple terms you're like this one's going to be sort of like a bee thing it's going to inconvenience you this one you know you probably have to go seek medical attention this one you're going to seek medical attention your finger's probably still going to melt off this one you're just going to die straight away like your finger won't even melt off it's fine so there's so many different levels and you know and when you put it in plain sight like that people are just like yeah, I'm, I'm going to go sit inside. Like, I'm, I'm going to sit yeah. this one out. You yeah. can sit with me. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? That's that's fine. At least you'll never be alone. I mean, there's there's more people Very like true. there's more people like that than there are people like me and Mike out there. So, I mean, it's we're, yeah. we're the oddballs, I guess. I'm like, what? Cool. We got to get a photo of that thing. It's so rad. And then it's like, okay, we also need to get it out of here. It's going to get stomped by this thing or, or it's going to bite someone. Um, and then other people are like, I'm not going to that house again, ever. It, that snake went into that house, and I will never enter that house ever again. It is done. Yeah, just burn it to, burn it to the ground. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's uh, splash in holy water and then rinse it in flames. And yeah, a couple, a, a couple of liters of holy water. <laughs> a whole yeah, big right? gallon, yeah. Oh, shoot. Well, guys, it has been another awesome podcast. Uh Tyrone, thank you so much for all of your time, dude. Like, uh, I know it's a challenge, especially with uh, famous South African load shedding and um, also just being able to get to strong, good Wi-Fi and uh, the time difference where mm -hmm. it's 11 a.m. here in California at this point. So it's what, nine, nine? No, yeah, it's, it's yeah, just gone past 8 p.m. So, I mean, we're, we're not too far off. And obviously, with today being Saturday, it was chill. Just just before we sort of hopped on the podcast, I was out flipping trash, finding snakes, only to come mm. home, only to come home that I had no, I had load shedding. So, which oh oh yeah, so <laughs> actually yeah, if I give everyone, we, we we kept talking about load shedding. People are probably like, what are you talking about? But this it's, is such a South African thing; it has to be described. I like, yeah, look, I was um I was on a tour yesterday with some Americans. Actually, they were from I think they're from Kansas or, or somewhere, and they were like, "What? What is this load shedding?" I was like, "Well, basically, for the last 15, 20 years, the government switches off your power at particular intervals, usually for two hours at a time, um, at various points of the day, throughout the whole country, essentially just to reserve power." because of their inefficiency to um, maintain the, the power supply and, you know, update it with new technologies. So you can go for periods where you have two hours of load shedding in the morning, you'll have two hours at lunchtime, and you'll have two hours at night. So out of your 24 hours, you can have six hours of load shedding. So you have no power at all. So and it's, it's it great. It tends to be like, I, I don't know how it works, but I swear, like in all of our project zones and sites, it seems to always happen when I need it most. 
it is comically ironic. Like it'll be the day that I like, it'll be the day and the time where my laptop ran, ran flat or I was waiting to go get to the Wi-Fi to make a call. And it's like load shedding. You're like, all right, cool. Okay. Yeah. Well, what, 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 what's even worse is you'll be in the middle of making dinner. You'll be sitting there at the stove, you know, cooking your dinner. And the next minute the lights just go and you're like, yeah, well, my food's, I'm going to have to pick this up in two hours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a bit of a bummer but yeah that that's a load shedding in a nutshell so we just live with it i mean there's there isn't much you can do you just sort of you know what it's going to come back on in two hours and we just we just roll with it really i think south africans are super resilient for just dealing it with it with you know obviously it's really frustrating but you guys always make a good joke out of it because it is it does make daily life challenging when Mm -hmm. especially it gets out of hand um i remember again in the uh couple trips back the one that Robert was on last with me um, at certain times of the day, I'm communicating with the stateside team and the team that's in, in Southeast Asia and the exact time frames that were the best matches was when we would lose power. And I was like, how is this, how is this specifically happening? Like, well, it would change too. be like, okay, tomorrow we're going to try it this time and be like load shedding. You're like, Oh man. Yeah. And like, I- I'm obviously used to it, but I was just like, I can't, I can't communicate with everybody. Break. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm yeah. not going to get to everybody. And you, tr- you try to explain it to people like, like earlier, um, when Mike and I were, were, were chatting beforehand and I missed a bunch of his calls and, you know, cause I didn't have Wi-Fi, and the Wi-Fi had switched from going on from my cellular data to Wi-Fi, And I just was like, Hey Mike, you know, load shedding. He's like, I got you. He's like, I know the feels. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, dude, this is rough. Uh, shoot. Well, I'm glad it it worked out. We were able to hop on. Um, Robert, did you have any closing questions or comments? That um, the only thing I can ask is just the next time we're in South Africa, can you come and catch all the snakes in my area? Yeah, I think I think we can work that out. Yeah, we can definitely make a plan. <laughs> dude, honestly, Robert, you you honestly do need to. We, we all need to meet up when we're out there, but either on project sites or between projects. Cause like, yeah. um, like Tyrone's got his mad skills going with the photography too. And it's cool. It's a lot of fun to get some of the shots of these really hard to photograph species. It's a different ball game. It's like, it's not like a giant elephant that just stops and stands yeah. there or even a bird, you know, these things are like darting, whipping around, well camouflaged in layered brush you know it's mm-hmm. it's it's a lot of fun yeah we're gonna have to make it happen that'd be sick so Let's yeah i think so um well guys if that's that i think we might call it for that um yeah again thanks to everybody who tuned in uh you know whether you're listening in segments the full length your jump between different episodes don't forget to go to the Instagram page and uh, follow and go subscribe on the Spotify channel or whatever channel you're listening to. If you haven't done so yet, go ahead and jump on and rate the podcast on whatever platform you're listening to. It helps us out. And of course, don't forget to share it. Uh, for a while, we have been taking it slow, building up episode base, but now we're starting to kind of push it out a little bit more and you know, maybe drop a link with your friend who might enjoy some of the comedy or the conservation, and uh, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you have topic suggestions, also contact us via some of our pages uh, and give us a shout. Or you can hit us up directly on our personal Instagrams, 
and that would uh, allow us to jump in. So content experts, conservationists, uh, hot topic stories, and uh, you know the whole lot of things. There's a lot of topics to be covered in the world of conservation, so mm -hmm. uh, give us a shout. But until next time, this closes out another episode of Coffee and Conservation, and we will see you guys shortly in the next episode, hopefully with some of our celebrity guests on that, that next episode. So should be pretty cool. Uh, Tyrone, dude, appreciate it. I know, it's again, it's a challenge. I greatly appreciate your time and effort jumping on. And Robert, always a pleasure, dude. I'll probably see you yeah. soon for uh, sushi. I'd love that. I'm ready for it. <laughs> Let awesome. But yeah, cool. Thanks so much for having me on the, sh on the podcast, guys. I really appreciate yeah, it. Tyrone, it was, it was a awesome. pleasure to meet you. Man. Yeah, you too. Yeah, man. man. Good, good chatting. Nice, nice to catch up again, Mike. Hopefully we'll, we'll catch up in IRL, as they say, in the not too distant future too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, man, seriously. I, so when I'm, when I'm back over, I'm definitely going to see if we can line up. Cause like I had a blast. I, I rarely get to have that downtime and just go out and find cool snakes and lizards, which <laughs> Are a lifelong passion. I'm I'm dealing with the, you know the the dangerous angry mammals, which I also love. But I I don't get the downtime of the the scanning through the bushes with the with my snake hook. <laughs> yeah, you gotta get Robert into that too. Oh, yeah, Robert, you, you don't have a choice, bro. You're coming I'm in. The, I'm gonna have to bring a really long hook. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm gonna All right, end friends. the recording.